0: Amen, well church as you're having a seats, if you would, grab your Bibles, or uh, if you'll notice I think Zach maybe already mentioned this, but in your seats are the scripture journals. We've got black ones, and we've got really cool foil, what are those called foil print ones? I can't remember the cool name for those. And so if you don't want the one that's next to your chair and you want the prettier one, just grab another one. We've got some empty chairs, so it won't hurt my feelings. So but all this is is just uh, Colossians on one side, and some lines, blank pages on the next side. So we give that to you as a gift. You can take it home. We want you to engage God's Word. We want it to be a reminder to you to read God's Word. And as you're reading God's Word, we believe that God is living and active and moving, and He speaks to us through His Word. And so we want you to start writing down what it is that God's teaching you by the Spirit through that little journal. And so that's our gift to you as we begin walking through Colossians. And so we're excited to do that. We're jumping in today. Um, I'm going to read the first eight verses that we're going to cover this morning. We're going to jump in. I got a lot of ground to cover. I'm trying to look at my clock so I don't keep y'all too late. There we go. Okay. I'll get yelled at if I'm too long, especially those working in the nursery. Colossians 1 1 through 8. Here we go. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow beloved servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ. On your behalf, and has made known to us your love in the spirit, so we 're jumping into Colossians uh, kind of if you 're new with us, the meat and potatoes I like to say of how we typically move through the scriptures as we take a book of the Bible and we look at every word, we look at every phrase, we look at all the sentences because we believe it is god 's holy inspired word, <laughs> excuse me in every part of it. Is there for us, and so we're going to be doing that through Colossians, and this is a marvelous book. It is a wonderful book. It is packed full of these amazing truths of the gospel, of the character, the nature of God, who He is, and it is this paints a very big picture of who God is and who Christ is and what Jesus has done for us. However, if you go to Colossae today there really wouldn't be a whole, whole lot to look at. I'm going to show you a picture. If you were to go there today, Colossae, the town, is in modern-day Turkey. And so you may be looking at that. You're like, look at how beautiful that looks. It's it's, mountains you've got. And then you're like, oh, man, is that Colossae out there? All those those houses and businesses and all the things happening back there? No, that's a neighboring town. Colossae is actually that little mound of dirt and grass right there. See it? How it's kind of elevated? That's Colosse, right there. Nothing there anymore. It's an unexcavated dirt mound, essentially, in Turkey. So if you were to go there today, Colossae, and if you were there long ago when Paul was writing these folks, it was a very small little town, uh, very unimpressive. Not a ton of things going on there. Today, the Turks don't, have, uh, don't really believe in the Bible, and so they don't really find it to be beneficial to send biblical archaeologists to go dig it up. There's probably some amazing things that could be found right there, but uh, we haven't been able to get access to it due to government stipulations. But Colossae is very unimpressive. It's small. Uh, it was this small little church, but yet... Colossians, this book, this letter that Paul wrote to this little church plant that he wrote to them has had tremendous impact on the kingdom of God for many, 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 many years. Where we get our deep understanding, the big seminary word of our Christology, the (laughs) doctrine of the nature of Christ, a lot of that comes through this letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians. I've heard it said it's a mustard seed kind of church, very small but great an impact. Um, and so it remains untouched today. It's just it's this amazing, just that, this, that little hill, but so much has come out of it. So we know very little about Colossae in the time of Paul. Um, it kind of sat on the east-west road from, uh, from Ephesus to the east, so the bigger town Ephesus would have been out to the east. At one time, it is believed that it was a thriving city. There was a lot of things happening in the city, but over time, its significance had diminished. A lot of biblical scholars and historians believe an earthquake hit and it never fully recovered. So there was still a remnant that tried to rebuild, but when an earthquake hits back in biblical times, there's not a whole lot of rebuilding that takes place. And so the impact of that community and that place diminished. In fact, it's been said many commentators say that this town, Colosse, the fact that Paul wrote to this little tiny place, is called the least influential of all the places that Paul ever wrote to. How'd you like to be known for that? Um, Paul never visited this place. He never went there. He never met this church in person. Paul did not plant this church. A lot of the churches that Paul writes back in the New Testament, he helped form and establish on his missionary journeys as he preached the gospel, not Colossae. They name Epaphras as the one that they heard the gospel from, not Paul. And so it's this very interesting church. And when Paul uh, pens this letter um, from prison, mind you, he pens this letter from prison it was probably this church would have probably only been between 5 and 7 years old sound familiar a young church and they're dealing with some issues. They're, dealing with ha- they're having trouble believing the gospel. They're having trouble really grasping the, the implications of who Jesus is on their lives and how that means they're to live and interact with one another in this place in which they live. It's not this bustling, like, booming uh, metropolis. It's a small church plant in a very unimpressive kind of a city. And Paul writes to them. And it's, like I said, credited uh, a guy named Epaphras that began this church. And Epaphras, we'll talk about him a little bit later, he shows up in Acts chapter 19. If you've been with us for a while, we preached through Acts, and you, uh, if you took really good notes and you remember all of my sermons from years back, you'll remember exactly who Epaphras was, but many of us won't. So Paul met him on his missionary journeys as he's preaching and teaching the gospel. And he also shows up in the letter to his letter to the, uh, to the Ephesian church. And so Epaphras was a guy that was around Paul that heard Paul begin teaching and preaching the gospel that Jesus is Lord. And now Epaphras, Paul's friend now, who helped plant this church five to seven years before, they're going through some issues. And so he can't pick up his cell phone and text Paul to get some advice. He can't even really send him a letter because Paul's in prison. So he visits him in Rome, makes a long journey. And he goes and sits down with his old friend, Paul who uh, preached the gospel to him, who Jesus had saved, who this man Epaphras is believed to have planted this church in Colossae and also the church that is mentioned in Revelation, the church at Laodicea. Epaphras is believed to have started both of these churches. He goes and visits Paul. And Paul is addressing a specific situation that is sort of uh, affecting this little young church plant in this little town. And the situation has to do with the believers there uh, beginning to believe some false teachings about what Jesus is and who he means for them and, and what the implications of this Christian life mean because of believing in Jesus Christ. And so Paul instructs these new believers and he gives them some specific instruction on how to trust in Jesus, that Jesus is enough, right? And that's one of the reasons I thought it was fitting that we look at this book. I I found some similarities between us in this letter to uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians. We're a young church plant. I think all of us, as we live out our day-to-day lives or find, find it struggle to believe in the gospel of Jesus, to really not, to not let all the influences of the world and what the world says of us and how we should believe and live, not to inf- let that infiltrate how we think and how we live, but to let Jesus be enough for us. We don't need to add on all these other things to be worthy in the kingdom of God. We don't need to add on all these other things to the gospel to be considered righteous and holy, that Jesus is enough, Christ is enough, and this is what Paul comes back Back to, and he's just going to ring this bell for this young church as he learns from Epaphras that this young church is, man, we're prone to just listen to all the other voices and all the other voices. Um, and so he reminds us uh, not only the, of, so, so this, this church, though, it's, it's located in this really know nothing town, right? Paul reminds these folks, this church, that though they not, may not be from some big important city, that where they are spiritually is the most important. He actually begins the letter that way, the second verse. He says, to the saints and fellow brothers in Christ at Colossae. In the Greek, it literally says this, in Christ in Colossae. So your geography doesn't really define you. He's, Paul looks at these folks says, you may not may feel like you're from some big shot town like Rome. You're not like it's not the Romans. He says, you're in Christ and you're in Colossae. That's really what defines you. First, you're in Christ. So wherever your address is, you're in Christ first. That's what defines you. Not just the town you're from. You're in Christ first. You're, you have a dual identity as a Christian We are in the woodlands, but we are in Christ first. That's what leads and guides and shapes us. So Paul is gonna take up a pen and he is going to address these Christians by letting them know Jesus is enough. And there's kind of the, the... the, the sentiment of the day, I'm giving us some background, so as we jump in, we'll understand as we walk through this. It was these folks that were telling these Christians that they needed something else besides Jesus. There was kind of a smugness about them. There was kind of, uh, one pastor I've heard say, uh, said it, they were kind of getting big-timed. You ever been big-timed by someone? You know what that means? Anyone? It's like the name droppers. It's like they know they they know better than you. Oh, that's really sweet. You're following this Jesus. Well, you you can do that, but you should really think about doing all this stuff too, because this is really where it's at. This is really where you're going to find life and wealth and success, and you're going to flourish. Forget all this, or maybe keep doing that. That's really cute and neat, but just tack on all this other stuff and listen to this person. This is really the one you want to listen to. They were kind of getting big timed a little bit. And so Paul writes to address these false claims and reset them, reset the rails, if you will. And one of the words that pops up over and over in this book is the word fullness. These false teachers were trying to tell this new church that there's something lacking in their Christian life, that they need something else. There's something new. There's something better. There's a a new way. And Paul writes to these Christians in this church, and he writes to you and I today to say, we have all we need in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We have all we need. We have all we need in him. We have his fullness is now granted to us. Christ is enough. And so when we say Christ is enough, we're also saying the gospel is enough. He uses that word all the time too. For where the gospel is preached, where the true gospel is preached, Christ is preached. He is enough. So the Colossians didn't need more than the gospel. We're faced with these lessons all the time. Someone will come in, you need more than the gospel. You need more than Jesus. You need that second blessing. You need this. You need that. You need to tack on this part of it. Paul says, Christ is enough. You just need to apply the gospel more. You don't need something more than the gospel. And so by embracing the gospel as preached by Epaphras, the Colossians are embracing Christ himself and proclaiming that he is, in fact, enough. So let's jump in, and we're gonna fly through these first eight verses. Verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Paul writes, as an apostle, he's setting up his apostolic authority, that he was empowered by the Spirit of God for this unique work, that he was set apart from his mother's womb. Galatians 1 talks about this. Paul's right and Paul's call to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, that's you and I. Timothy is a co-sender and is Paul's brother in Christ, right? And so here we see at the very outset an example of Paul serving alongside other Christians, He's saying, I'm I'm Paul and Timothy's with me. We're in the gospel ministry together. It's not a Lone Ranger thing. It's not, I'm not in this alone. I'm with fellow brothers in Christ. I'm preaching the gospel together. I'm raising up people alongside me. No Christian exists in isolation. No church exists in isolation. And so who is this letter to? To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Literally, like I said, in Christ, in Colossae. Saints implies our status or their status, what Jesus has done for them. He's made them saints. And faithful speaks of their stance, how they were viewed. So, saints, Christians, believers in Christ, when God sees you, this is who you are a saint. Meaning, we've been set apart from this world for the work of Christ. Now, it doesn't mean we go around calling each other, hey, St. Agnew, may I ask you a question? That would just be really strange, right? Or oh, St. Nathan, "Come let's, let's get together for breakfast. And people would hear that. And no, that's not what it means. But our, 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 our status implies that we're saints, not because of our own moral superiority, because we've gained something or we've figured something out that no one else has. But we can be called that because the blood of Christ covers us because of that which he has done that we could never do on our own. So now Paul can call this, these people in this church, even when they're struggling to believe all that Jesus is, he says, saints. Even when you're still a mess, saints because of the work of Jesus. Even when we're still struggling to believe all that who Jesus is, saints because of Jesus. And then he says, faithful. Faithful. You're faithful, Paul says. This is, this is remarkable. This is the only greeting, the only greeting that the Apostle Paul, when he writes to a church, that he uses the word faithful. That's pretty amazing. Calls these people faithful. Paul says you're steadfast. You're a faithful people. And so this letter is written that they would remain faithful to Jesus who has preached to them and not be led astray by whatever the latest trend or whatever the latest fashion was, but they're faithful to Jesus, to the saints and fellow brothers in Christ at Colossae, in Christ. That is, we enjoy all the benefits. We have a union with Christ. We're in Christ, Paul teaches us. We're in him. We're found in Christ. It's not just that like he's next to us, Paul says, you are now in Christ. We have a union with Christ. We are one with Christ now because of the gospel. So if we're one with Christ, if he's not just our great example that we have to live up to, he has now come to be in us and now with us and we are united with him. That means his life is now found in our life. His His death, we're bound up in his death and his victory is now bound up in us. So our past doesn't define us anymore if, we're, if our union is really with Christ. Whether you have great shame, whether you come from a, an abusive past, whether you have suffering in your past, whether you have whatever it is that you've walked through, maybe it's just great successes. He says our union with Christ is what defines us, not what you've walked through or what you've accomplished. Our union with Christ is now yours. So we don't let our past define us. And we don't even let our future, our, what we can do. We let what Christ says of us define us because we're united with Him. That defines us today and forevermore. It's Christ that satisfies the human heart, ultimately. Our great searches for Him, where we long to be united with Him, and in fact, uh, it's been said, this, this quote, it says, every time someone knocks at the door of a brothel, he's looking for Christ, looking for satisfaction, looking for fulfillment, looking to have their heart satisfied, their flesh satisfied. All the deepest longings of the human heart are only ultimately found in Christ. And we go looking in a lot of different places. And Paul reminds, reminds this church, you're united with Christ. His life is now in yours. You have all that you need in him. And he goes on. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is Paul's classic greeting. It's found in almost every one of his epistles. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And so Paul here combines the Greek and Hebrew greeting expressions, right? So he says the, the, the Hebrew expression, grace, blessed, blessings to you. The Greek expression, and then he goes and gives the Hebrew expression, shalom, peace. So Greek and Hebrew, he gives both. He says, blessings and peace to you, blessing and peace to you. And where does it all come from? God, our Father. Every blessing, all the peace you need from God, our Father. And Paul is going to continue to emphasize the nearness of God, the Father, through this letter. And Paul then flows into this with these great thanksgiving statements in this introduction. In verse 3 down to the verse 8, which we're going to look at, hangs on this phrase right here. You can underline this in your journals if you got it. We always thank God. We always thank God. It's a thanksgiving like we often see in many of Paul's letters. Next week, we're gonna look at verses nine through 14, where he's going to talk about him thanking God and intercession and praying to God. So essentially, Paul is beginning his prayer and he's gonna continue it. So we're gonna be praying with Paul for the next couple of weeks. We're gonna see what he's praying for this church. Paul is saying, give thanks to God learning to give thanks to God. He's teaching this church through his letter, learning to intercede and pray for one another like Paul intercedes. And Paul says, all of this is tied to something. It's tied to the gospel. It's tied to the gospel. So verse four, he's gonna thank God for the reception of the gospel. I thank God that you have received the good news of the gospel. Verse five, he's gonna thank God for the global impact of the gospel. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that funny? This little tiny church, he's gonna say, I thank God that the gospel is going forth in the entire world. It's like, what? He thank God for the messenger of the gospel. <clears throat> Thankfulness is one of the most dominant themes in this book. Why is that? Thankfulness is one of the most dominant themes in this book. Why would thankfulness be, be brought up over and over and over again? Well, I think because thankfulness is one of the ways that we fight discontentment. Anyone struggle with discontentment? Okay, I'm the only one. I'll leave. <laughs> you guys got it figured out. Discontentment, we all struggle with it, right? That's why everyone wants the next iPhone. We're like, oh my goodness, this is going to be so amazing. My old one is like basically garbage now. I bought it six months ago. It was $900, but now I want the new $1,200 one because the camera is like 10.4% greater, right? And we're like, I've got to have that, right? We were just discontented people. There's something in us that just gnaws at us. Thanksgiving is how you fight discontentment. And if anyone could be discontented, if anyone could be sort of down on their circumstances, I think it would probably be the Apostle Paul, the guy writing this letter, telling these people to be thankful. Why? Paul's in prison. Paul faced massive criticism through his entire ministry. Everyone was combating him, telling him he was wrong or he was crazy in his missionary journeys. He was shipwrecked. He was hurt he was like i mean he was put on trial to be killed dozens like just all the time and now he's sitting in jail in rome and he's writing to these people telling them to be thankful for the gospel they have christ is all you need the spiritual warfare he faced but yet he's thankful is that our disposition is that your disposition Are you a thankful person because of all that Jesus has done in you and all that Jesus wants to do through you? They saved you into a family of God. They have a church home that you can call brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that we would not be a people of cynicism and always chasing the latest trend and fad, but yet we would be a thankful people grounded and rooted in the gospel. Paul says we need to be those kind of people. And what is Paul thankful for? What does he talk about? Well, he's thankful for their faith in Christ, for their love toward all the saints, and that their hope is in heaven. That's what he's thankful for. Faith, love, and hope. We've heard those in other places, haven't we? Those words pop up all over the New Testament. This is what Paul was thankful for. Now, I think it's fine and great and and good to be thankful for our stuff, like the, the, the homes the Lord has given to us, our families certainly uh, be thankful for the food he provides for us. Those are all really good things that we can be thankful for that's not bad or wrong. But every time you read the Apostle Paul writing letters to these churches, he doesn't really ever list stuff that he's thankful for. In fact, stuff doesn't really ever define Paul. He's pretty much lost almost everything as he's following Christ yet he's still thankful. He's not thankful for stuff. He's thankful that God is moving, that God is alive, and he's thankful for people and that God is doing a work in and through these people. That's what gets Paul excited. That's what gets Paul thankful, that God is moving in the lives of people. Paul gives gives thanks to God the Father for the salvation of these people that he's writing to. He's their father. And who is he? He's the father of the Lord Jesus Christ to whom they belong. It's not a generic thankfulness to a generic God. He's very specific about who he's thankful for. That life and salvation is found in God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ in whom we belong now. And he goes on to say, since we heard of their faith. Paul prays for these people that he's never met and he's heard of their faith. He still feels connected to them as family. He feels obligated to pray for them. He hears of their story and he sits down and he, to keep going, brilliant letter to them to encourage them in their faith in the gospel, to keep going that Christ is enough. Let's be for the work of the kingdom and other places around the world and even other places even here in our community. Let's be a thankful people that God is moving and at work. And he gives thanks again for faith love and hope faith love and hope and these are kind of like he's saying these are the marks of a vibrant church this are these are the family traits if you will of a church that's thriving and that is uh, a place that you need to be a part of a place that is marked by faith in the lord jesus christ by a love for the saints, that we just are for one another, we care for one another, we love one another. And why? Because our hope is rooted in heaven. Was rooted in heaven, he says. Now, I don't know what kind of family you come from. These are the family traits of maybe uh, the New Testament church, as Paul is thankful for, faith, love, and hope. I don't know what kind of family you come from. Maybe you come from a very athletic family, competitive family, Right? where sports was kind of everything. Maybe a military family. You moved around a lot. You kind of had the the marine dad, right? So you just, it was the military family. Maybe it was an artistic family. It was like you go outside and you just stop and you grab the sketch pad and you all just draw and look at beautiful things, right? Maybe, maybe that's how you grew up. Maybe that's the family you have. Maybe it was a family of hard workers, a family of cooks, a family of... Uh whatever, a, a crazy family. I don't know, maybe you have a crazy family. I sure don't, because they're all here today. They are totally normal and just all wonderful. <laughs> Not an ounce of crazy. My family a little bit, this is one of my mother gets a little nervous when I talk about our family. <clears throat> I grew up in a family of boys. In fact, my brother's in from Shreveport. Welcome, they're here. And so it was uh my mother and three boys, and I remember just one of the things dinner time when a family of boys that we were involved in sports we were always busy the dinner table seemed, especially as we got older was never really a time of great uh, just long conversation it was just kind of efficiency uh, in a family of boys and so when mom set dinner down with all the boys the boys set to the task of eating right And not a lot of words were spoken, and we would look up. After three and a half minutes, all the boys would be done, and my mother wouldn't have taken one bite of food, and so she would make us sit there and wait till at least she had taken four bites. Right? We were just—we were efficient. We were done. I remember growing up, and I remember uh, after I first started dating Ashley, her family invited me over for dinner. And I had just kind of grown up. By this time, I was in college, and so uh, my bad habits of just eating way too fast and being done with dinner as quickly as humanly possible carried over. And I sat down uh, with the Reddicks, and Jocko is is in a family of three girls. And he was a restaurant owner. And so the dinner table was like the slow, Jock was the slowest eater known to man. And all these girls were slow. And I remember I sit down for a family dinner over at their place. For the very first time, I was already nervous and I had some nervous energy, which made me eat even faster so I could finish a meal in 30 seconds rather than three minutes. And I, they set the plate down in front of me. I'm like, can't believe, I'd never, I don't think I'd ever been over at another girl's house for dinner. So I'm extra nervous about this. And I just set to the task of eating. And it dawns on me, like, 45 seconds in, I'm almost done with the plate, and I look up, and they all, like, haven't even, like, started eating, and so I have to just move the food around my plate for the next, like, hour, right? (laughs) Every family has different family traits that sort of mark us, that we remember, that define us, right? We all have different little idiosyncrasies. We have different things that sort of make us up. We have different habits that we learn, that we pick up. And Paul says the great family traits of a great church is a church marked with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Love toward one another. Love for the saints, he calls us, because of Jesus. Why? Because our hope is rooted in heaven. That's what what begins to mark us. That's what begins to shape us. And so when we see these traits in one another, when we see these things begin to trickle out, Paul reminds us to thank God for those things. Be thankful. Because only God can do that. Only God can do that. Faith, love, and hope. Faith and love arise out of hope. Since we heard of your faith in Jesus, And the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Faith and love spring up out of our hope in heaven. It's the gospel that produces faith and love and hope. So let's be thankful. Let that help fight our discontentment. Let's be faithful and thankful for faith in Christ. Not a generic empty faith, but faith in Christ. Christ is the object of our faith. There's no other source. He's the object of it. And let that produce in us a hope in heaven. That our home is not here. That we're longing for something more to be with him one day in heaven forever. The second thing we see is Paul thanks God for the global impact of the gospel. Verse 6. This gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Paul reminds this small little church in an insignificant little town that you don't have to be a part of some giant whatever. You don't have to have your name in the clouds. You don't have to have some... Um, whatever status that we think we need to be meaningful or to make an impact. Um, Paul looks at this little church and he says, God is doing the same thing among you that he's doing around the entire world. He's accomplishing his purposes and his task through you. Church in Colossae, little church in the woodlands, he can do all that he needs to do. He doesn't need fancy this, that, or the other. He can accomplish what he needs to through any means he needs in any zip code, in any location around the world. It is God that moves, it is God that is in charge. So Paul connects the hearts of this little church plant, those maybe struggling to see is God doing anything? Is God moving? Maybe they couldn't sense that the gospel was increasing and bearing fruit in their little tiny town. And Paul says, the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing. Take hope. Keep believing. Keep having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep loving one another well. And have your hope anchored in heaven. And when you do that, the gospel will go forth and it will bear fruit and it will increase ever more. And Paul is right. This is happening. This has happened. We're still reading these words, right? I, we, we get the opportunity to partner with a church down in the third ward that just met that wants to take the gospel to a new group of people. And they had their first service, Christmas Eve service, with a group of 25 people that met in a living room where they proclaimed that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then we want to have a love for the saints and we want our hope to be in heaven. You can go to a house church in China across the world and hear the gospel being proclaimed and growing and bearing fruit. You can go to storefronts and any major metropolis all over this country and see God's movement at work through the church. This promise is true, even when you can't sense it, even when we don't know it. And yes, you can even show up in a dance studio in an insignificant little town that doesn't have a whole lot, that has uncomfortable black chairs and the gospel can still be proclaimed and God's purposes can be accomplished for his kingdom, for his glory and our joy. Amen? God is at work. Colossians 1 is true. The gospel is bearing fruit and it's growing and it's impacting the world. And soon, God's word tells us, soon, The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge and glory of God as the water covers the seas. That's what we're hoping in. Last thing we'll look at in this introduction. Paul is thankful for Epaphras, verse 7 and 8. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned from Epaphras, our beloved servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love and the Spirit. Epaphras, like I said at the very beginning, heard the gospel in Acts 19. Now, if you don't have Acts 19 memorized and know what exactly is going on there, Paul is preaching the gospel in this place called the Hall of Tyrannus. And for two years, Acts tells us that Paul goes to the hall of Tyrannus, this little Jewish guy, preaching that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the Christ that everyone has been looking for. And so he preaches for two years, for a couple of hours, every day in the hall of Tyrannus that Jesus is Lord and preaches the gospel. And begins teaching and teaching and teaching. And you begin to think as you're reading this story, like, two, you, like, is anything going to, what, what's going to come of this? There's all these different people that come and listen. Well, one of those guys was Epaphras that heard that, that heard this little Jewish guy, Paul, teaching this in the hall of Tyre, town in Colossae, a little know nothing town, and begins to preach also because God had saved him that Jesus is Lord and he's real. And one day he's coming back. And he starts this little church. And um, Epaphras is also connected to, if, if you know your Bible, Philemon. It's another little tiny book. Philemon is also believed to live in Colossae. And Philemon, the letter that is penned, is basically a community group of the church at Colossae, or a house church. So here's a church that meets, that talk about the Lord Jesus, that love one another, that have their hope in heaven, and other churches begin to be formed, like Philemon goes out, and then Epaphras goes to Laodicea and plants another church, and we talk, they, they talk about that in Revelation, and so it's this legacy of the gospel being preached, and Paul says, I'm thankful for those like Epaphras that hear the gospel and go and open their mouths and declare the goodness of Jesus through the, through the gospel, the gospel message. So why do I say all that? That's a cool history lesson. What does that mean for us? Um, you never know um, what that conversation with your next door neighbor will do. You never know what that will become. You never know how meaningful it will be for that coworker that you took that extra 10 minutes to share you where your hope comes from. That little tiny seed of hope that gets planted that grows and bears fruit, Paul says, and it never stops because God does it. It's not you, but we are charged with the task of sharing that gospel message and epaphras was a faithful minister faithful servant of the gospel he's not just talking about pastors though we are called into the same thing too it's all of us men and women in the body of christ are charged with this task that we would be faithful fellow servants epaphras wasn't a full-time preacher he was just a guy that heard the gospel that was living his life, went back to his hometown to do whatever work he did and began preaching the gospel to a guy named Philemon who started a house church in his house, began telling people in his hometown at Colossae to start this little church and then the great apostle Paul in prison in Rome writes to them. This, And he heard it from this guy in the hall of Tyrannus years ago and we still read this letter to understand the bigness and glory of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. You never know what God's going to do. His impact can be way bigger than you could ever think, dream, or imagine. And Paul says, be thankful. Be available. Root your heart in love and faith of the Lord Jesus. Love for one another. And have your hope in heaven. Let it spring up. And so this morning as we close, we're gonna finish our time or by taking the Lord's Supper, showing our thankfulness to Christ and all that he's done, that we can be called saints, not because of our own righteousness, not because we figured anything out, but because God and his grace through our Lord Jesus, by his death on the cross, through him raising again on the third day can now call us sons and daughters. And so we show our thanksgiving and our thankfulness to Jesus Christ through taking of the Lord's Supper like he instructs us to, something that churches have been doing for thousands of years that this church did that root, roots and anchors our hearts in Christ in the gospel. And so I'm gonna pray. Uh, the band's gonna come back up while we're praying. And after I say amen, as you're ready, you can just come. We're gonna have folks standing on either side here. Just rip off the bread and dip it in the cup. Uh, pray and, uh, and have a thankful heart for Jesus and all that he's done for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, I pray for us as a church, as this local expression, Providence North Community Church. God, thank you that we don't have it all together. Thank you that we can relate in many ways to this little church in Colossae. But thank you that, Lord, you are moving and the gospel is bearing fruit. Lord, I pray that us, that our church, would be marked with these things that the Apostle Paul reminds us of. That we would have a faith that is anchored in the Lord Jesus and the gospel. That we would have a great love for one another. That we would see each other as saints because of all that you have done. And God, I pray that you would connect our hearts to something bigger than just this world. That you would anchor our hearts to our hope in heaven. That one day we will be with you forever. But God, make us a people that are marked by these things. Help us live that out. Make us a thankful people. Lord, we're thankful for Jesus and the gospel that he would consider us undeserving sons and daughters through his shed blood and through him raising again on the third day. And so we come, we take communion in remembrance and in thanksgiving to you, Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Come when you're ready.